the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, <laughs> massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. A lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're, if not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end. Warren Smith joins us now, Vice President of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program. Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged, and just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event, uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more. And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your your, your hope meter is, is wearing out in all of this, but that you're, you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And, and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today? Well, you're exactly right, Craig. And, you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines. That's exactly right to see um, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to um, to say uh, that we live in serious times. But uh, we, uh, as Christians, are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And, of course, Christians, of all people, should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus said, or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus per se, but the Bible says, or the, the three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because as we have been looking out at the world at all these negative uh, stories, we've also been, been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people it, it just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and 
loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed. We've seen lives rebuilt. We've seen entire cities uh, transformed. It's, it's in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. Um, uh, in Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile in Restoring All Things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope in the midst of these chaotic times. So at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective? And I, and I asked that question because, you know, when we were kids, uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Something always told me that one of those words at least was misspelled. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But from, from, a, from a Christian perspective, there's another set of three R's that I think we can't forget that, in fact, is foundational to our very faith, which is what leads me to this question about perspective, and that is another set of three R's, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that uh, that Christ played in world history. That's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's, because there are, in fact, many more than those three R's in Scripture. We, in fact, we begin, near the beginning of the book, we talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and uh, engage in those activities that um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos, whereas uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned, R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption, uh, we we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this this activity of, of restoring all things to himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's it's one thing um, to say that Jesus saves and Jesus uh, transforms and Jesus redeems, but if our lives don't show that, Craig, it's, that argument is not convincing. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives. And I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel. Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And and I ask that question because, you know, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if, if you were doing well, you married the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect job, you had the perfect amount of money in the bank, you had perfect health, uh, all of it, a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay, but here, in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening? And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't His grace shine the brightest? 
Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, and, and, and throughout history, I think not only in our own individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian church thriving whenever the world around it was in chaos. We tell stories, for example, uh, from the second and third century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases were just just ravaging cities, and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease. But it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process, but it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, even recently in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that were that um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine, and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another, were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember. Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the, the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? Yeah. I mean, yeah, is, is, the, is the message of heaven all that powerful a one, uh, absence the existence of hell? I, I, would, I would suggest probably not. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce, Bruce once said that uh, the, an, an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation. And, uh, you know, it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, and it's it's also also easy for us Christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor but you know our neighbor Jesus died for our neighbors even the one the neighbor that we don't like you know just as much as Jesus died for us so I think that um, you know what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview which is that we do live in a fallen world but that God loves us so much that he sent his son and when we accept him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with him in this process that the, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory. You know, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not an example of um, spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me, and so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here, um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that as opposed to saying, look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we got some work to do. And uh, in the midst of this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, Vice President of World's News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Warren, is Everyday People. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of racial unrest, economic imbalance, social strife, all of this taking place. It's, it's hard obviously, uh, and frustrating for a lot of people, and then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if, well, you know, they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and, and affecting God's plan for re- uh, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. But maybe they feel like, well, as overwhelming as all this is, though, isn't my work largely going to be for naught and, and, and ultimately insignificant? Well, you know, it's a really great question, and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stone Street, uh, my co-author, uh, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say, gee, I'm just little old Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or um, Eric McCaxis even. Uh, so what can I do? And what we discovered in, in our searching around for stories and the stories that we reported in the book uh, were stories of, of individuals not doing great things, but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is, look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak, back a number of years ago. But what we what has turned the tide, If you, today, abortions, the number of abortions are going down, the younger generation is more pro-life than its parents. That's what public opinion surveys tell us. How did that happen? And and a part of the reason uh, it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country. In thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities. Uh, This movement has sprung up spontaneously. It wasn't uh, a top-down movement. There wasn't somebody in Washington, D.C. or New York City or wherever saying we, we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet, when we look you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we, what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Yes, they uh, they are engaged in pro-life activism. They are maybe engaged even in protests from time to time. But that's not all they do. They are also really caring uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across America. It's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country. And I think that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty. It could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do. Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often 
heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China. And it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen, an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up. And there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this, uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it it is enormous. It is breathtaking. It is an incredible uh, work of, of feat to be sure. But you know what it's made up of? Individual small bricks. Yep. Any one of yep. those bricks by and of themselves would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together creates this incredible edifice that has such an impact that it can be seen from space. And it, and it, it, it dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here, that you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest or uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in, in economics or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own. But together doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can it? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives that kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story when he was a high, in high school. Uh, he uh, had, it, it really because he'd been cutting up in school, his teacher made him visit an older woman, what we used to call a shut-in, uh, and uh, as punishment for cutting up in class. But So John visited this woman, who at that time was in, uh, probably seemed ancient to John, was in her 70s or even early 80s, and they just spent 30 minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and, and John said, do you remember who I am? And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just, the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to pray for him every day. And John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea. But a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later. But he always remembers the, the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker as they having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which, of course, changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know how God is going to use our availability. Uh, it's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability, our job, our goal. Our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the Holy Spirit work from there. And I I think that uh, great things will happen. In the Absolutely. Moment. And, of course, through that act of obedience, Warren, can come uh, God executing on his plan for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Warren Smith, again, the book is called... 
Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People, newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. And our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Life. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be intolerant. And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech. Coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum, I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today? day that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I, I call the people in the book the liberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, and that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand, they still claim to value these things, while at the same time, they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore, and if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society. And, and how do they live with themselves in a sense? And, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think that, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate. And so that they don't they, they don't feel that there is a need to, for example, treat somebody who opposes same sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot. And and so, you know, even though I, I do support same-sex marriage, I, I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill. And that, you know, and then that the best way to engage people is to... Um, persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the liberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty and public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote unquote truth to win out. But yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there is almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98 from that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of 
of the inside looking out. Is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on? I don't I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they, they feel like that they're on the right so called right side of history or the you know, the right side of the issue and, and so that they you know, there's, I, there's this example. This just happened last month of a uh, uh, Christina Hotsummer, who's she's an AEI scholar, and she came. She went to Georgetown and Oberlin universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people, you know she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings, so they were being triggered. You know, this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger. And there were signs for a safe room where you could go and, and be safe while she's, you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous. You know, that that's I think that that is what is. It takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, I can't hear this. That it's actually posing a danger, and need, and and they try to get the speeches canceled. And if they can't get the speeches canceled, then they try. To, they're very disruptive, um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of uh, of tools that they utilize. Seems to be some of the more popular approaches: stigmatization, uh, delegitimization as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non, non-beings. non You don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats. Um, that they are, you know, bush in a skirt. Uh, they're all sort of these, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the, the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women. Or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually, what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanized, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to, you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say... They stand for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language? For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time, didn't Ed Schultz even uh, use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and when it's done, 
one, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And at some point, they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Though they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to, you know, we have to stand up for this. But, you know, they're not. But, but for a long time, they didn't. And a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing. That a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So it, you know, it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them, and then other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was you know sitting atop his perch at MSNBC, is doing it. Whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it, uh, they you know they just sit there and they they don't they they just either ignore it or they um, you know. Maybe we'll find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he he apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago, it's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the, the Democratic party we see it taking place in in the news arena it's almost as if there's there's no free um antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned right i think that's exactly right um yeah and i just did want to clarify that i just checked that rush Limbaugh did apologize to her which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with impunity and are never are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just it's such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to to not have to, you know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced and been convinced of is, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a race denier, as they call the people who question the campus rape statistics. And it's just kind of, they're neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate, uh, and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really just, just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth and we're not supposed to question it. 
Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so-called bias response team. Uh, Share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it. Uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, uh, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really often described as a violent event. That's the language that's used. I I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was quote-unquote triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration, that she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it, it, you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just, I, I can't, you know, I just, it, it was, I can't, I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. Just, you know, the irony is that you, when you, breakdown. when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s. Yeah, yeah, very similar. And it's there's yeah, there's an aspect of who you talk to also uh, is is indicative of, of who you are versus what you say or what you think. And I experienced this actually when my book came out when uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for, and is considered a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had 
allow the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you know, suddenly you're a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the, the right the, the right people, then uh, then they're going to if they investigate Republicans, they're going to be fine. But if they investigate Democrats or not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson who award-winning investigations of both parties, but all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack. You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she had apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson? What 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 kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, there's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There's, there, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million, you know, and, and I'm not, I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't, and if, and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't, I think that they, they're, they're, they're free to, you know, have, have whatever kind of program they want to have. And, uh, and I, and I don't think that that means that, you know, if Chris Hayes does something on one show that, uh, you know, a reporter or a host of another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And, um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's, just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion yeah yeah i think that there's i, I there's definitely an element of that it's very hard to sustain these the, the these ideas for example that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're close to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and you can see, you know, that they they aren't homophobes. I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, that that 
at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, <laughs> in knowing people who are different than them. And they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty close-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically, working at Fox News, and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity, where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, I, you know, it did slowly break down my, my prejudices, frankly. I mean, they were prejudices. Uh, where I could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and th- these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible, and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs, to engage with people in a loving, legitimate intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so. Yeah. It's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen. But I do think over time and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things or even, you know, they have their their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. On smart speakers and the Odyssey. San Francisco, Oakland, A service of Salem Media Group, sponsored by Hillside. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.